Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Nugebauer, and today we have a very special treat. Joining us are Pastor Hans and Katie Feeney. You may know Hans as the guy behind the Lutheran Satire Project and Katie from her nonprofit, Swaddling Clothes. They are, to say the least, a Lutheran dynamic duo. But truthfully, what I find most impressive about them is not their church or professional pursuits, though these are certainly noteworthy, but rather it's how they lead their family and model what it is to be pro-life in a very literal sense, caring for children both inside and outside of their biological family. You see, Hans and Katie opened their home to foster children years ago and even opened their family to adopt children through the foster system. By tuning in today, you'll learn not only what it means to foster children who are not of your own flesh and blood, but also what it means to love children as our Lord has called us to, to expand the idea of who it is we are called to serve and love. Hans and Katie, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Would you introduce yourselves? Uh, So I'm Hans, uh, as you can tell from my voice. I'm a pastor in the St. Louis area. I've been here about a year and a half. I've been a pastor overall about 14 years, served congregations in Denver, uh, about an hour southwest of Chicago, and then here. Uh, Katie and I have been married almost 16. No, we have been married 16 years Mm -hmm. at this point. Coming up on 17 years. My goodness. So that's me. I'm Katie, and we have four boys, and I currently get to stay home with our youngest there's a large gap between the third and the fourth. And so um, I'm remembering everything that goes into having a child at home. <laughs> I'm pretty simple, basic. <laughs> In a good way. In a good way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, I think you're being very, very modest. I got to talk with you on the phone and you have some really cool projects going on. You're very invested um, in your church community and also, of course, with your family. Now, uh, tell us the age of your boys. So they are uh, 15, 13, 11, and 3. Your youngest is Levi, correct? Levi, yes. And he's 3, and he was um, adopted a little over a year ago. Yeah, a year, yep. yeah, a little over a year ago through um, the foster system in Illinois. Okay, so in part, we're going to be able to hear that story and your story from the very beginning of foster care. But first, I kind of want to start with some theological groundwork for what it is that you and, and your family do. This is directed to both of you, not just not just you, Hans, although you're very capable of answering this question. But quite simply, what is the call of the church? What's the call of Christians in caring for children who are orphaned or displaced from their families? Yeah, well, you know, throughout history, the church has always had a large emphasis on caring for the fatherless. That's a very scriptural principle. You know, you you see that show up, especially in the Psalms quite a bit, where the Psalms will describe, for example, from Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the sojourners, he upholds the widows and the fatherless. Um, so that we we belong to a God uh, who has a heart for the fatherless, who wants to be a father to the fatherless, uh, who wants to come to those who don't have anyone to care for them and protect them uh, and to do so. And throughout uh, the church's history, the church has, has always taken a strong position on providing homes and providing love. For the fatherless, uh, Christians have long had a tradition of, of adoption, uh, which is, again, a very deeply scriptural idea that God's whole plan of salvation is that uh, through the blood of his only begotten son, we have the right to become his adopted children. We have the right to enter his family, uh, having our sins washed away. You know, when you read the scriptures, when you live within that Christian framework of understanding the world, it builds in you a desire to care for those who have been discarded by the world, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So when you look out at those in the world who, in particular, children who have no one to care for them, the Christian response should certainly be one where we look at ourselves and we look at our lives and we try to determine whether or not we would be able to faithfully serve those who who don't have a home by opening our homes to them. Hans, you mentioned that this has long been the history of the church to open your uh, one's home to the fatherless. How is the church acting throughout history and then even now in stark contrast to culture throughout time and especially now 
in terms of how we view children in general? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the things that I don't think people always realize is that the influence of Christianity in the Western world has so greatly shaped the way that we view children that we tend to just see a typical Christian way of viewing children as normal. When in reality, throughout history, that that's not at all the case. So, you know, you look back, for example, you have these stories of the ancient Spartans who, if they had a son who was born deformed, would leave the child out on the rocks outside of the city to die of, of exposure, that children were not considered from their birth members of their household, but basically had to be accepted by the paterfamilias, by the head of the household in order to have that sort of status conferred upon them. So the idea that that children possess an inherent dignity, uh, an inherent value, is not at all something that is readily apparent to the world that's not influenced by Christ. We're we're obviously very blessed to live in a world that has been formed uh, to think that way. But the idea that you have an inherent obligation to a child that, that is orphaned, for example, is very much not something that the world just naturally picks up. It's uh, it's a deeply Christian idea that um, that's formed by the idea that Jesus comes to die for all, uh, and Jesus therefore shares his love and and his and his one salvation uh, for even the most seemingly insignificant, burdensome of children. And on account of that, we should see those children not as insignificant and not as burdensome. Uh, but as as the most important people in the universe, because they are, because Jesus died for them, and as as a joy to have in our lives, uh, rather than as a burden that's somehow taking joy out of our lives, because there's there's no greater joy in life that comes from from giving love to someone uh, who otherwise wouldn't have had it. And you're right; that stands in stark contrast to what we see in our culture today. We've had a podcast episode about this how people view children today as burdens. And these are are children born into a biological family. This is what we can expect from the world, but this is not how the church is to be, as you so, so well put. Can you tell us the difference for those who really are not familiar with a conversation about adoption and foster care? What is the difference between a child who is up for adoption and a, a child who is through the foster care system in terms of their parents and the kind of care that they need? We adopted through the foster care system. You know, there are private adoptions. I believe you had a podcast before about this that I listened to where they were going through the the private route um, of adoption. And then you can, you can just foster where you say, I'm going to be a home for this child and hopefully they are able to go home. And if not, then we will take care of them and nurture them until they find a family that will adopt them. When we started to foster, we we didn't necessarily go into this specifically to adopt. There are ones that will foster because they want to foster, and there are ones that will foster because they ultimately want to adopt. We did not really have a goal either way, I guess. We all always just felt that if if a child couldn't go home, that their, their home would then be with us. So that's kind of how we've approached the whole thing. When you move to another state, your license for fostering doesn't just follow you. So you have to you have to start everything again. We thought about this and you know, there, there is a large age gap between number three and number four. Even if we aren't able to, to adopt again, we wanted Levi to be able to have siblings that were around his age so that he wasn't alone. Uh, He's not alone with his older siblings, but I mean, you know, like during the day they're gone and that he's surrounded by others. So, I mean, obviously it's not just for, for him, but I mean, the thing is, is like, we are, you know, inviting these children into our homes and they are like ours. And so it's good for him to be surrounded by that too. So just backing up, what I'm hearing you say is that Mm -hmm. children who are through private adoption, their parents have already given up the legal right Oh, yes. I'm sorry. You can have private adoption with an older child. That's not, that's very rare. Um, But usually it would be a birth mother talking to an agency before she even gives birth um, or right after she gives birth. And so it, it would be something along those lines. With foster care, these children are taken by the state out of the parents' homes. And by and large, most states' goals um, are always going to be to return home. So 
they'll always place them in in homes and the goal is to hopefully reunite the family. Okay. But that isn't always possible. And so the children are only ever free to be adopted if the state has terminated parental rights or in some cases the parents after meeting the foster parents or whatever have just decided that they feel like their kids are in a better place with their foster parents and then have relinquished their rights. So foster care, these these kids by and large have not been, their parental rights have not been terminated yet. Sometimes they are and they're just waiting to find a home. I think that each state can maybe do a little bit better of job to tell people <laughs> what kids are free to adopt that are just kind of in a waiting period. So the ultimate goal then of foster care, by and large, you said, is to reunite the child with their family, whereas a traditional adoption would be to find a permanent home for this child. Is that correct? Yes. And so, I mean, there there are a lot of challenges that come, you, you know, with that. And you have to go into it with that mindset. So you you have to be able to give everything of yourself, but also realize that you may not get to and it and it would be a good thing to not be able to keep this this child that you have loved as your own for for however long. You know, from our experience, a little bit before Levi, we had a, a sibling group of three and we had them for about a year and we still see them and talk to them. And, you know, we love them very, very much. We love them as our own, but we also embraced their parents because if we wanted that to work, the only way that was going to work was if the courts and the kids and saw that we were on the same side. Their situation was a little different in which it, we could kind of see that this was this was a good place for them to be. And we felt very good about them being at home. And it was kind of just fighting the system for a year to get them to to see that. In foster care, you're going to you're going to get some kids that you will wonder at. It'll keep you awake at night of how could you as a parent do this to your kid but you have to you have to make yourself kind of move past that and say this was the worst time in their life and people make mistakes and we need to be able to help the child heal and help the parent heal so that that relationship can ultimately move forward and and move forward in whatever way it needs to be i mean there are people that have um their parental rights terminated all the time that honestly do love their children but for what one reason or another just it's not in the child's best interest to stay there, but it is in the child's best interest for whomever the child ends up growing up with to honor their birth parents. I'm just trying to think through this because I can imagine all of the possibilities of what children have gone through at home, whether it's abuse or neglect or whatever caused the state to temporarily take them away from their family. Is there any theological basis for saying it's of the utmost importance that they somehow find their way back to their biological family? Or is, is this just like an understanding of society that we're trying to reunite them? I guess because how can it be best for them to go back to a family that has caused them so much hurt? I think there's a, pre- a fairly strong natural law argument to it, you know, which is that children are best kept with the parents that brought them into this world. And there's a ton of data on this that, that backs that up, that basically kids are, whenever kids are raised in any scenario other than raised by the their biological father and mother married to each other, there's always some harm that comes to them from that. The natural union that brings about children is the best situation for kids to grow up in and, and a whole host of bench metrics that you can measure when it comes to uh, you know the lowest levels of abuse, when it comes to a- academic achievements, uh, psychological stability, all, all of those things. So I think when the state uh, approaches it, they they look at things from that perspective and they recognize if we can fix this situation of mom and dad, or if it, even if it's just mom, yes, they very well may end up, you know, they could, parental rights could be terminated and they could end up being raised by a family that has more money, by a family that has more stability, where they would have more opportunities and, and a whole host of other areas. But we have a ton of evidence showing that it's better for kids to grow up poor with their mother uh, than it is for them to grow up, you know, rich with somebody who isn't in, in a number of ways. 
I think from a from a Christian standpoint, um, the scriptures do tell us that one of the purposes of government is to yield a peaceful and quiet life for people, to enable us to lead peaceful and quiet lives, and that the state has a vested interest in preserving the safety of, of the innocent. You know, they, these are kind of like the basic requirements of, of governments to defend the innocent, protect the innocent, and to uh, allow the the peaceful and godly to lead to lead holy lives. Uh, that doesn't necessarily tell us how each department of whatever is going to is going to bring that about, but you you can certainly make I think a pretty simple argument from the scriptures that the state definitely has a vested interest in protecting children from abusive situations, which means that. At some point, the state has to make a judgment as to whether or not children need to be removed from from their parents' r- responsibility, basically. So, uh, so in the, in the same way that we we recognize that the state ha- that you know that God gives the state the authority to wield the sword and the the authority to take life if necessary, we can also recognize that the state does have uh, some measure of authority in removing the vocation of parent. Uh, from those who are abusing it, from those who are um, bringing harm to those that God has called them to to faithfully serve. So, so that God can take that vocation away um, through his lawful authorities and give that vocation to someone else. And the way I've often described it is the worst thing that you can ever do to a kid is leave him in an abusive household, as leave him with parents that he should be taken away from. And the second worst thing, which is equally bad, is so the flip side of that is that the other worst thing you can do to a kid is to take him away from parents when you shouldn't. So it's a very difficult responsibility that the state has. And for all the frustrations we've experienced throughout the years in the foster care system, it, it is something that we, we've always tried to kind of keep in mind, which is that the stakes of this are massive and it's not easy to know exactly what it is that needs to be. Some situations are really cut and dry. Uh, there, and there are times when kids are taken, when it, there was a genuine misunderstanding of something that happened and, and, you know, a doctor at a hospital just, you know, gets a, a raging savior complex and thinks that he's saving a child from abuse when it was genuinely a kid just got hurt in a regular type of accident. And then there are obviously cases of, of clear cut abuse where no one in the world should ever for a second think about giving a child back to those parents. But there's a lot of stuff that's in the gray. So as Christians, we recognize sometimes the vocation that God gives you in this is not to take over as a parent for someone, but be the, be a neighbor, is to help those people who are parents get their lives back together, get everything in order, get through whatever difficult situation they may have been in that caused them to not be able to care for their children, and to basically be faithful neighbors who feed and clothe and care for and love their children while they get themselves into a position where they can resume carrying out the vocation that God has given them. I would agree. I had wonderful parents. You had, you know, Hans had wonderful parents, you know, still as do. well. Yeah, we both do. Sorry. <laughs> They're both still living. Sorry, we love mom, you, dad. mom and dad. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we grew up in a house with everything that we, you know, maybe we didn't have everything we wanted, but we had everything that we needed. And I had wonderful, both of us had wonderful childhoods. And so I look at some of these parents that we've met and I realize they didn't, they just didn't. Some of them didn't grow up with even the things that they needed. They made it out. They're maybe living on their own and they've, they've had a child. And it's really, really hard sometimes to get past that when they don't know, because they didn't have it. We've always been very good too when we've met the parents for the first time to tell them we are not here to take away your yeah. children. We are, We're we on are your with side. you. We're yeah. on your side. We are here to love them and protect them and to help you be able to love and protect them as well. Yeah. And one of the things that I, has definitely been frustrating for us uh, throughout the years is uh, I've often said this isn't really a joke. It sounds like one. But uh, when you deal with foster care workers, in particular, the social workers, licensing workers and stuff like that, there's a weird division in the folks who go into this kind of social work. So the people we've worked with have either been the laziest, most incompetent people we've ever met in our entire lives, or the hardest working, most dedicated, most amazing human beings we've ever known. And 
there's nothing in there's not, nothing in between. It's easy. it's either one of those two extremes. That's been our experience. That's been our experience. If yeah. we have caseworkers listening, I don't want to uh, yeah. give you guys a bad rap. Yeah, but the caseworkers that would listen to this were the good ones. Well, so that <laughs> so, so they, they they know they know. Okay. The other ones are are, are doing other stuff. Social workers don't make a lot of money. So a lot of times the people who go into it are it's secondary incomes for for upper middle class ish type of households, which is great. But one of the challenges with that sometimes is you get people who just think the only acceptable standard for living is upper middle class existence and upper middle class material uh, existence and upper middle class methods of raising children. And so it, that's kind of one of the things that can be a challenge is that you'll get people in the system who think, oh, these kids shouldn't go home because they don't have X, Y, and Z that like the vast majority of kids in the history of the world have have never had. That's super wealthy, top 1% of, of world history living there. And so that's one of the things that a lot of times as a foster parent, you have to really keep in mind is um, because you get these kids and you love them and there's always the part of you that feels compassion for them. And then you start wanting to make them your own and you start wanting to rationalize, like, why would we be a better home for these kids than than their parents? And you'll have 20,000 things in front of you that you can use to justify that. You go, oh, well, we've got more space and, and we have more stability and this, that, and the other thing. And you go, yeah, but if, if that's a justification for taking someone's kid, then like most of the kids in the world should be taken away from their parents and, you know, and given to, you know, Americans who, if you make over $30,000 a year, you're like in the top 1% earners in, in the world. You know, there's a lot of um, kind of self-evaluation and, and um, uh, exa- self-examination that needs to happen in the process where you're constantly needing to remind yourself, stop trying to justify uh, making your de- your desire to c- care for these kids more important than what's actually best for them. And going back to one of the things that Katie said, one of the best ways you can do that as a foster parent is to the best of your ability, developing close relationships with their parents. Because when you see their parents and you see how much they love them, that will go a long way to kind of killing that that covetous desire in you to to make their children your own. Now, obviously, that's not everybody's experience either, as far as like, we have been very fortunate. The, most of the children that we have been able to care for have been able to go right. um, home. But we recognize, obviously, because we have Levi, that that is not always the case. And right. so I, while we are big advocates of, of parents, helping parents get their stuff together, we are equally as big advocates of not having the kids squander in the system for a very right. long time. And sure, certainly there are going to be people who, you know, who this happens oftentimes where you'll have parents who will be pretty close to getting parental rights terminated and then they do just barely enough to get things extended six months and then they fall off, you know, again. And right as things are about to get taken away again, they'll, they'll do that and they see this get drawn out. And so it's very difficult there. I know there are a lot of foster parents that have been in really difficult situations like that. And yeah, and I don't, don't want to give the impression that everyone's experience will be like ours. It could be, it, it might not be, it really all just depends. But in the end, I think the way I, I always tried to approach thing, I think Katie was the same way was as a foster parent, you have to say, until God's lawful authority in this is the state. It's the judge who is saying yay or nay on the issue of parental rights in particular. That for me was really the big kind of dividing line. And once a judge terminates parental rights, and then typically in a situation like we had with Levi, then it's just a kind of procedural matters until you officially become his parents. Terminating parental rights, that's the moment when you can say, okay, God has taken that vocation away from that person and is now in the process of, of giving it to me. But until that point, no matter how toxic the situation can be, you got to find a way in your mind and in your heart to just say, this is not my child until God's lawful authority says he's my child. So in, in technical terms, we talk about foster parents. But really, what you're saying is that people who bring children into their home and foster them aren't really supposed to have the vocation of parent, more so that of neighbor, of caring for their needs temporarily in the hopes of them 
going back to yes. their biological yeah. parents. It's going to look a lot like parenting, yeah. though. We definitely shed a lot of tears over the years of trying to get kids back on track. I mean, even from from little that just have been allowed to function in a way that was, you know, obviously that was just dysfunctional. It's not all roses right. for, more, yeah, for it's, a neighbor. It's, it's um, probably more like the vocation of aunt and uncle in some uh, ways. I, I feel like my aunts and uncles were so much nicer than what. Well, it's like aunt and uncle if your parents have to go out of town for six months. Okay. Yes. That's, so you have a higher, you can't just hand them off to someone else, you know. Uh, so you have to see it as your responsibility. But yeah. Right. We feel the same fears we have for our own children. You know, how are they going to be when they're adults? Um, are they going to get kicked out of kindergarten tomorrow? How many people is she going to bite? Yeah. So it's like being a parent in the sense that you don't get to check out and there's never right. a moment where you get to say, well, that's not my problem. Right. You know, like you do with other people's kids. One of my favorite things as a parent is when you go to a party with, you know, you've got little kids and other people have little kids and you hear a kid crying and you go, oh, and then you go, wait, oh, it's not my kid. <laughs> and it feels so good that you don't have you so have to good. get up, right? You, so you don't get to do that <laughs> right, as yeah, a foster it. parent. So, so you it, get to do all of the heavy parenting things while also keeping in mind that they sh- will hopefully go right. back. And yeah, I would imagine that tension is always there for you as you have other children in your home. Now, out of curiosity too, even as you're doing this for children in your home, what is the state doing or other social services doing for the parents to help them regain their children and correct some of the issues that were going on in the home to begin with. So when you have a child removed from your home, the state is going to come up with a plan and they will have X, Y, and Z that you need to do. So the plan is written out and it will say, you have to do all of these things and then you get your kids back. It's not worded as simple as that, but that's kind of the basic of, of what it is. And they kind of tailor it a little bit to whatever your situation was. So if it was drugs, you've got to be clean for all this time before you even have visits. And then then you've got to show that you're consistently clean and, and various things like this. They have parenting classes and there are outside agencies that will also help them just with, you know, things like housing and whatever their issues may be, will help them with jobs and, and, you know, various things like that. But it's not easy. So the state will tell you this is what you need to do and they might sign you up for some classes, but then otherwise they they really expect the parents to seek out this help on their own. In some ways, I think that's a great idea. We, they do need to kind of come up with some of this stuff. And then in other ways, if you are so far in the pit uh, in de- of despair and can't see, sometimes that's overwhelming to do those things. So there are agencies out there. It's something like this, I want to know everything about because I feel like the more that I know and the more that I can share, the better it will be in the long run for everybody. And I want these to be done quickly. Like I think if I were a caseworker, I would be really pushing everything through. Not not in a hurried, like I would still take my time and, and make sure you know all my I's were dotted and T's crossed. When you take somebody's child, I think that point right there, they're hitting a low, but they're also motivated that most of them to get them back at that point. And so don't let them wait two or three weeks. You know, get them now and move them into things that they need. So we've talked about this in broader terms, but now can you share your own experience? What got you into fostering children and what has that been like for you? I don't know that I always grew up wanting to foster. I mean, I didn't think of it, about it in that in those terms or that that way. So I grew up in Texas with my parents and we didn't really have any family around. And then when you are a pastor's daughter, you don't you can't go anywhere. I mean, for holidays or anything like that. So it's not like you have everybody <laughs> around. I mean, every holiday, our house just had people that were not biologically related to us. I kind of grew up that way where you always just had this extended family. So that felt very normal to me. I was working at a preschool after we got married. We actually had a foster child in the preschool. And I think that was the first time I'd ever met a foster child that I knew of. I didn't know much about his story other than he had been moved several times. And as you're playing with this kid, he was only in preschool, you're sitting here going, how, how does this happen? How is this sweet kid been in four homes in less than a year? Like, I don't understand that. Came home and told my husband, I was like, I think we should do this. And he said, yeah, I agree. We were in Denver at the time and we knew we were going to be moving. So we couldn't, we waited until we got to Illinois and then started the process. So Hans, why did you say, yeah, I agree. You were just in immediately. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it was, I loved, I just love the idea of helping out kids that were in need. I saw how compassionate and how passionate Katie was about it. 
And that's a, it's a very infectious thing when you come across people who have a, a heart for uh, the fatherless, which uh, Katie always has. It's one of my uh, absolute favorite things about her. My approach with fostering was I, I certainly always hoped that we would be able to adopt through it, even though it was the same kind of mindset of, well, we obviously if kids are able to go home, that's the best thing for them. But if God should place into our house a kid who can't go home, we would we would gladly take him. You know, we had wanted to have more kids. Pregnancy was a bit difficult for Katie. We had we were very blessed to have very healthy babies, yes. but it was a it was a miserable process for her. Um, so that was that was part of it too. Was I come from a large family? My mom's one of ten. My dad's one of five. I have a ton of cousins, and I love kids. And I would we we would have gladly had eight children, ten children. If you seemed fine with eight, and then when I said ten, you you no, I you, I felt you sigh. When so we maybe, got married, we were like we're gonna have six, and yeah. then we had one, and I said. I don't know about that. Yeah, our first. And then yeah. we had two and I was yeah. like, not happening. Our oldest <laughs> yeah. count. I mean, he's a really great kid now and he causes us no problems now for the most part. But as a toddler, he was a disaster. So he counted as, we counted him as three kids. Cause yeah. that was, it was the same workload. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, That's but, fair. <laughs> um, but that was, yeah, that was largely, it was that I loved the idea of, of bringing kids into our home that didn't have anywhere uh, else to go. And I like babies. And I mean, I like people of all ages. I'm a, I'm a pastor. You have to kind of, kind of do that. You know, you have to like humans at all stages of existence, but yeah, that was, it was an idea that I very much loved. I know the woman I'm married to quite well. And I knew that once we got to the point in our lives where we were able to actually get all of our ducks in a row, that she would be amazing at that. And (laughs) I mean, Katie's been amazing at so many things uh, in our marriage, but I've, I don't think I've ever been more impressed with anyone about anything, anything I've ever seen anyone do in my entire life than I have been uh, seeing her as a, as a foster mom, seeing her pour through legal documents, medical documents. I mean, I couldn't have done this without her. I play with the kids and I make peanut butter sandwiches for them and stuff like that. And then Katie does like all of the hard work. It was like when I was in uh, high school and I had a really great uh, lab partner. Uh, I was not good at science in school. And I had a very I had a very smart lab partner who knew how to do all of the science. And I would dissect the fish eyeballs because uh, that was the fun part. And so that's kind of how fostering has worked is, you know, I'll spin kids around and, and buy them ice cream. Which and is then, much needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. And then Katie does all of the heavy lifting. I want to say heavy lifting, but I do all the reading and the research. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, then you make a great team. I mean, yes. I think that sounds like what daddies do and what mommies do really well, yep. typically. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Then, Katie, you were uh, working in a preschool and you met this child and then you just decided to start looking into fostering children. Yep. So when we moved to Illinois, Anders, our youngest at the time, so our third son, was only two months old. The process can take a while. Yeah. The state will give you a year, plan on a year and a half. So I, while I'm very type A, I guess what's in on the ball of various things, I'm also somebody who doesn't want to impose on others. I would email and say, okay, when can we take our next class? And then I was just waiting for weeks and weeks to hear a response. And now I know, oh no, I'm just going to keep emailing them every day until they sign me up for what I need because I don't want it to take a year and a half. We were pretty lucky with, with our training when we moved moved to Illinois after we got our house and got things set up. We called the agency and said, okay, we're ready. What, what do we need to do? And they said, oh, actually, if you can sign up tomorrow, we have classes two nights a week for the next six weeks or something. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay, let's do it. And so we had some wonderful people in our congregation who would take our children while we, because you couldn't have them when you went to class. And we went to class for seven hours a week for the next six weeks. You know, you have to take so many hours of various classes before you can become licensed. But then after that came the, the home studies and various things like that. So that can take a little bit of time because it's just working out everybody's schedule to be there and cleaning your house. (laughs) Yeah. So a moment's notice. Yeah. Depending on what state you are in, they will be, uh, I mean, you know, like looking in closets and cabinets and various things and some don't, but I just wanted to make sure if they opened a closet, not everything would fall out on them. So (laughs) I just took it as my opportunity to clean everything. So I guess the whole process took us a little less than a year in Illinois to get done because we 
we had gotten in on these classes pretty early. And before the ink was dry on our license, I don't even think it was in my hand yet, we got our first kid. Mm. Wow. I'm going to tell you, this is what we do every single time. They call us. When the state calls you, they'll tell you, boy, girl, age, if there are any extra things, you know, learning disabilities, anything that they know about. So it depends on where the child is in the system as far as if they've been there before and they know or if they don't have a history. They give you as much information as they can. And you just know that there's going to be more to follow. Every time we say this will work, we got this and we all in our house hustle and bustle to get things ready. We get a room ready. We get extra, you know, snacks. We get a car seat. We do everything that we need to do in the, in the time that we're given. So sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's a few hours. There was a time when we got the sibling group of three that it was, we had a week or so to get stuff ready. So we are all excited. We know nobody really thinks about it. It's just happening. And then we get them and we play with them that day. And then we put them to bed and my husband and I lay in bed going, what did we do? <laughs> oh no. And it's not even that anything has happened. I think we're just like, there are other humans in this house yeah. that we have to care for and that we don't even know, you know? So you're mm -hmm. just, you're trying to get to know them and explain the rules of the house along with everything else. And it's just, um, the first few days are like, oh, but then it, it kind of calms down. It, it does calm down after that. So yes. Yeah, so we had a little boy for a couple of months and then he moved on to an adoptive home. He needed more one than on we were, time, yeah. more one-on-one -on -one time than we were able to give him. And so he ended up being adopted by a special education teacher and, and her husband. And that's been a very good situation for him. And then it was like six months and nobody called. And we were like, wow, we must have really mm -hmm. screwed that one up. You know, like what, what's going on? But then all of a sudden we, then we were getting calls and sometimes we were having to turn them down. We just didn't think with the needs that they could tell us that the kid, you know, the child had, I wasn't going to be able to do that and fulfill the needs of my own children. We've had nine children in our home. Those were the ones that were placed with us for longer periods of time. We've done other respite care for other foster parents. So respite care is like babysitting for foster parents. So just a couple of days or a week at a time, depending, you know, we, we had a couple of girls for a week and a half because the foster parents had scheduled uh, an out of country vacation before they even accepted the girls. Various things like that. We just actually had a respite care little baby last weekend here. His foster parents are amazing and they got uh, a new placement and they just wanted to get to know their new placement. So they had their other two foster kids in respite care so that they could get someone on one time with him. Mm. I would say if you're ever looking into getting to foster care to maybe start with respite because you know it's mm. only for a short period of time and you're going to get a taste of a little a little bit of if at least the kid part, the good stuff of it. Medical insurance and all that stuff comes later and you'll figure it out. You know, that's not something you'd have to deal with then. So yeah, we've had, we've had all ages. Uh, typically we take... Um, because it works, we have found over the years, it works best for us that we take younger than our youngest um, to follow in the birth order. That's not everybody um, follows that obviously same uh, guideline and, and it works for them. And that's great. You got to figure out what works for your family. And that's what, what works for us. We have taken older a few times and, and it's, and it's been it's a challenge, a challenge. Our boys are very loving and very giving, and they honestly have, my husband and I probably would have quit a few times before if it had been our choice, um, and they are the ones that have kind of kept it going. Hmm. The boys are amazing. Our boys can install car seats and, and put kids in them, and they get them dressed, and they brush their teeth. For a while, we had a sibling group of three. They were two, one, and newborn, Wow. Went along with our older three. And so everybody was just like, how are you doing this? And I said... I don't know that I would be able to if it weren't for my older kids. Mm -hmm. Our our middle son at the time saw me getting up early for work because I was working full time at this point. I was like, oh, we can't, I can't just quit. You know, I've got to, you know, we've got to have these kids and I got us to work. And my middle son saw me getting up very early for work so that I could get the three kids dressed and ready to go. And so he started waking. He set his alarm so he could wake up early so that he could get them dressed while mm -hmm. I was getting dressed. And so these are just things that they do because they love it. I, I can't even explain. I don't even know if they would be able to put into words. Yeah. No, they've been they've been awesome. It hum humbles me every yes. day to see how, hmm. how amazing they've been. If you had to put it into words, what do you think they've learned or gained from the experience of having other kids in your home? They've learned to think beyond themselves. They're still normal teen and preteen kids, so... That we, we have the sassiness and we have the, you know. Yeah, if you want so to do a podcast where we talk about how <laughs> rotten our kids are, I mean, we got, we, we've got a lot of material. They can do that. We can do that. 
But it's one thing is that this has never been an argument we've had. So we, we can have arguments about all kinds of things, you know, oh, you won't let me have a phone or, you know, we, you know whatever. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to anything to do with fostering, there's never an argument. There's never like a, why do I have to get in the car again mm-hmm. and go to therapy? Or why do I have to? So they've learned to think beyond themselves. I will say our, our second son years ago, before we started fostering, said he was never going to get married and he was never going to have kids. And we were like, yeah, you're, you know, you're seven. So <laughs> like, okay, you're, you can say that. And then it's turned into now I'm going to have, you know, 14 foster kids. And I was like, ah, you might want to talk to your wife about that. You know, like <laughs> the three older ones will say that they plan to foster and maybe adopt when they get older, which I love yeah. hearing from them. Well, um, but you don't really know how much it affects them. The same son that wasn't going to have any kids wrote a paper about what it was like for the adoption of our youngest Gus's paper was just all about recounting that day that the adoption finally went through and being able to give him a hug as his brother for the first time. I mean, it was just, it's, it was very, very sweet. I think Levi is everybody's favorite brother. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. Levi has been the greatest gift our family has ever received. The day of his adoption was wonderful and also a little heartbreaking, I think, at the same time. Like, it's a very mixed emotion because yeah. we knew that while we were rejoicing, there was somebody else that was weeping. I will take my, you know, my my blessings, but I will always be immensely grateful to his biological mother for having him. I've heard you share a lot of blessings that your family has received through this experience and then the blessings of children coming through your home and what they're able to receive from you and then reuniting with their family. But can you talk briefly about the specific challenges for the children who come through your home for your own family? And in those challenges, how does Christ (laughs) meet your needs and the needs of these children? Navigating the system and dealing with behaviors that you're naturally going to get just because you've moved a child. So whether they've had behavior issues before or not, it's hard. It's like if you were to take your child and you've never told them no, and you've never made them do anything, and you get them in their five, so they've had five years of being able to do everything that they've wanted to do or done a different way. And then now all of a sudden you're starting to discipline or curb behaviors or various things like that. And so you're always working from behind. You just think to yourself, this would have been easier if I'd started when they were one or there's a little bit of that. Obviously there's learning how to curb behaviors while keeping in mind what their trauma, if any has been. My husband and I go to court every single time there is court. Not every foster parent does that. I would strongly encourage you to go to court every single time. It is worth taking off of work to do that because there's information that you will hear in a court that the caseworker cannot legally tell you. But if you're in court, then you're going to hear it. It just helps to kind of know. Going to court and watching as the case that I have is the most important case to me. And the guardian litem has 250 kids that she's supposed to take care of, right? So I'm watching this court case and I am seeing that they are not doing the best for my child, for my children. They're not doing the best for them. And it's frustrating because I know that means that's another month that I have got to put them to bed crying because you didn't do your job. And I think adults need to do better about that. And I recognize that we're overloaded and and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, we're with the kids that are being punished for this, or they feel like they're being punished. And it's hard if the child has a visit with their parent, you know, don't plan anything for the rest of the day, for the most part, because that child is going to be on your couch crying for the rest of the afternoon because it's hard. It's hard. And my kids think one of the hardest parts for them is not being able to comfort, like they try to comfort a little one and you can't. And so it's kind of learning to be okay with the tears, with the sadness, and then just trying to to get them through that. Uh, getting therapies together sometimes and fighting with insurance companies, uh, ridiculous. And I think a lot there's a lot of burnout from some foster parents, not because of the kids, but because of the system. And it is hard. It is, I'm not going to remotely sugarcoat it. I think we, I have gone to bed so many nights crying because I just didn't know if I could do it anymore. But it's like you get a glimmer in the eye of this child and you know that you can. And God has put people in our lives that have made this possible. So, I mean, he, he has given us wonderful boys 
who have just been amazing about all of this, but our congregations have been amazing. So they've been a shoulder for me to cry on. They have gone above and beyond to get background checked. So they were able to take the kids, all of our kids for afternoon so that we could have a break or that we could get things done. And they've just always been there. And I think without the support of others, I honestly don't know how a foster parent would do this if they didn't have a church family. Like I really don't at all. I mean, they, they've mm. been so supportive and the church can really help there. You know that you've got a family that's doing this, you know, even if it's just, if it's holding a baby during church or like our congregation was great. We had a couple of kids that, that were very developmentally de- delayed um, and had humongous fits. Sometimes it's just somebody coming up to you and saying, Hey, it's okay. Like we got, we got this. They're just having a hard time. So we've been very fortunate. Very. It sounds like you have an incredibly supportive congregation, not only uh, there in Missouri, but where you were yes. in Illinois too. Yes. For all of the challenges for your own family in bringing these children in, but also the extreme challenges that these children have for their, their biological parents, the challenges that they have, what would you say to the naysayer? And again, this is a podcast of life issues. What would you say to the person who says it was better for their parents to have the option to abort if they couldn't provide, you know, for their needs rather than to put them through the foster system or to adopt them out? Yeah. um, You know, I think when, when people have that mindset, it's a very... It's kind of a pious lie. It, so it's it's one of these sins that um, that it's easy for people to convince themselves it's not sinful because it seems to be dripping with concern for other people. But we don't solve the problem of of suffering by eliminating those who suffer. We solve it by eliminating the sources of suffering. Just in the same way that we don't solve poverty by eliminating the poor. Uh, but by eliminating the things that cause poverty. I, I mean, there's a, plenty of ways that we can talk about the, the fallacy of, of thinking that way. Um, but certainly, certainly one of them is there's a profound arrogance in thinking that you have the right to determine uh, when you are being merciful in sparing someone from suffering by taking their life. As a simple general rule, we can't justify taking life to stop people from suffering. The, uh, human beings are made in the image of God. They're not dogs that we that we put to sleep, uh, but that rather they're human beings who who received uh, life from their God and whose God it is that will determine when when they breathe their last. In a general sense, um, I mean, you could say the same thing about about people who. <laughs> who were born into perfectly loving families, but had terrible things happen to them. Oh, you know, a kid ends up being diagnosed with leukemia. It'd be a monstrous thing to say, oh gosh, it's just, you know, knowing everything we know now, it would have been better if, if his mother had just aborted him. So there, there's, an ab, there's an absolute arrogance to this that thinks that you are somehow qualified, that you're somehow showing mercy to people by sparing them a suffering that you couldn't possibly imagine having had to endure. And I think also, too, it's it's a silly way to look at the world. The term privilege is overused these days, but there's nothing that just reeks of privilege more than saying, if someone had to endure a life that I found unenjoyable, I would literally rather die than have to live the way that other people live. You know, So the vast majority of people in human history have grown up in poverty. A huge percentage of people have grown up with abusive parents, with physically abusive parents. A huge percentage of people throughout world history have grown up as slaves. We solve the problem by working to eliminate the things that cause suffering. So if, if there are kids who are being raised in abusive households, we solve that problem by strengthening families, by building stronger congregations that teach people how to live Christ-like lives, uh, by building stronger educational systems, and by building stronger foster systems, uh, by encouraging more people to get involved in the foster system so that we, so that there aren't, which, because this happens, uh, but this is, we certainly encountered this in Illinois, you have state budget problems, which means that the foster care agencies have less money to work with, which means that they 
will leave kids in households where they wouldn't normally leave them. And so, and they'll only take kind of the most egregious examples. So there's a, a million ways that we can solve the problems of suffering uh, without actually having to eliminate those who are suffering. So I guess my simple response to, to people who would think that way is, um, why don't you first adopt five kids from the foster system? You, then you've done your part. And then, and then you can say, oh, it would be better off if they were dead. Uh, get actually get involved in the lives of, of these people and realize of these children and realize how incredibly valuable and, and wonderful and godly their lives are. And very quickly, you will come to see that the world would not be better and they wouldn't be better off if they had never been born. Well, Hans and Katie, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me and to share with me and my listeners about the joys of bringing in children into your home, of the challenges, um, and as an encouragement to anyone who is interested in looking into fostering or adopting, especially uh, within the Lutheran Church, we do have an RSO directory. RSO stands for Recognized Service Organization through the LCMS. So an RSO directory, which can be accessed by going online to lcms.org forward slash RSO, and you can find an LCMS recognized service organization near you. Again, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Friends for Life. Thanks. Thanks Thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. Thank you.